As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. That's when I realized, okay, there's something here. Again, I never try to sell anything to my audience, but when I did and the reception was so well, I understood, okay, so there's something here that's working and we need to explore this. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Creative Elements. This week, we're venturing off into the land of YouTube once again, and I'm really excited about this episode because we aren't just going into the land of YouTube, but we're talking about freelancing, design agencies, and online courses too. Because today, I'm speaking with Ron Segal, the creator of Flux Academy. Ron lives in Tel Aviv, Israel, and has nearly 20 years of experience as a freelance designer, and his personal goals are really well aligned with my own and probably yours too. Growing up, I had a very simple dream. I wanted to do something that I love, have the freedom to work with people I want to work with, and have enough money to live the life that I wanted to live. Flux Academy is an online education platform helping designers build the skills necessary to succeed as independent designers. They've served more than 2,500 students, and currently they do that through three courses, the $10,000 website process, six-figure freelancer, and the Webflow Masterclass. But Flux Academy started as a YouTube channel called Flux, and that clip you just heard is from the channel's welcome video. Ron started the Flux channel in November of 2015, and throughout 2016, he was creating a daily vlog. 
Since then, the channel has grown to 200,000 subscribers and more than 9 million views. When I spoke with Matt Diavella in episode 21 of the show, he brought up an aspect of YouTube that he really loves and now I think about a lot. And this is what I think is great about YouTube in general, is that it's so easy to look back at creators and see how they got successful. Like if you want to be a great YouTuber now and you want to build a sustainable YouTube channel, go back and look at some of your favorite YouTubers, look how they started, see the first video that took off for them, you know, see how that video was crafted, the title, the thumbnail, all those things. Like we can look back at all these people. I've spent some time digging into Ron's channel, and what's really great about Ron's story, as you'll hear, he didn't set out to build a YouTube business at all. Ron loves serving clients through design. In fact, in 2018, Ron shared a conversation with Chris Doe of The Future, where he was trying to learn how to earn more as a freelancer while building a software product on the side. Last week, I had a talk with Chris Doe, founder and CEO of The Future and Blind, and this was one of the most mind-blowing conversation I had in a while and I want to share that conversation with you. Chris is actually teaching me how to double my business by selling high-value consultancy. That whole 45-minute conversation is worth a listen and I'll share it in the show notes. But what really stood out is that Chris really tried to underscore the earning and impact potential of Ron's YouTube channel. At some point, the YouTube channel, depending on your, your life ambitions, can exceed all other things, including the product business that you're building. Who knows? Things changed quite a bit for Ron since that conversation. In late 2019, he actually sold that software product. And about that same time, he launched his first course, the Webflow Masterclass, which completely changed the trajectory of his business and his YouTube channel. Today, Ron is focused on building Flux Academy full-time. So in this episode, we talk about Ron's experience freelancing, what he learned working in a design agency, why he created the Webflow Masterclass, how he pre-sold it to his audience, and why consistency has allowed him to build an audience in a business that's larger than himself. I'll be sharing some of Ron's videos throughout the week in our Creative Elements listeners group on Facebook. So join us there if you haven't already. And let me know what you think of this episode. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. I'd love to hear from you. But now, let's hear from Ron. I actually started freelancing back in high school just because, you know, I was toying around with design software as a hobby and just, you know, showed all my friends in school what I was doing. So Eventually, they told their parents, and somehow it kind of evolved into paying gigs. But it was always kind of something that I did for fun. Sometimes I got paid for it, and other times I did not. It wasn't. I never thought I'll end up kind of a full-time freelancer. So I, I think earlier in my career, when I was considering, I thought about, you know what, I have the rest of my life to sit at at home in my underwear, at least that's what I was saying. Uh, so let me hang around people right now and, and I wanted to work in, in creative spaces and learn from other people. And it was only, I think, around seven years ago, six or seven years ago when I went full-time into freelancing. So I've, th for about 20 years, I've been doing it kind of part-time. And, and by the way, doing it part-time for so long also enables you to kind of easily transition into full-time because You've built a network, you already have a portfolio, you're already familiar with you know, how projects roll, how to price, and so that's helpful, obviously. So that's kind of how things rolled. At some point, I know you, you worked at an agency as well. I'd love to hear 
how that experience felt relative to the freelancing you had done up to that point and when you decided you've had enough working at an agency. So I, the way that my kind of design career evolved is that my first actual job, like role, like full-time position was in a, in a software company, actually in a gaming company. So kind of like designing banners, emails, stuff like that. And then from there, I moved into a huge advertising agency. So like a really big agency working on billboards and stuff like that for, for big brands. And from there, I kind of moved into a smaller, maybe let's call it mid-size branding agency that does kind of branding projects. And, and from there, I moved into a startup as a product designer. So I kind of had a, a broad experience. And I feel like the experience has been different from, you know, big advertising agency where you're kind of a really small bolt in the system. And you have, again, I was very low level. So I had art directors basically telling me what to do. It wasn't really very creative role. It was more like execution, but I did learn to execute very fast and I got tons of software hours. So that was helpful in that sense. But then when I moved into the branding agency where I got to do branding and more design work, that has been really fantastic in terms of learning how to, so I've, I've, been kind of winging freelance on the side, you know, on my own, but I've never seen how to properly do this. And when I worked in an agency, that's the first time where, you know, my boss, the creative director put me inside the meeting with the client. And then I saw how like professionals run their, you know, the meetings, strategy session, presenting creative ideas. So I definitely learned a lot from being in that agency. I eventually burned out just because the culture there was kind of culture where you would work super late every night past midnight and uh, you can't, I can't really sustain that for long. Yeah. So it was good and bad at the same time. I mean, I learned a lot, but it was very hard. Can you remember any of those specific lessons of, wow, these guys are doing this really differently than I've been doing it as a freelancer. Some of those moments where you thought, oh, that's completely different than what I'd been doing. I think, first of all, the approach when you're uh, a creative starting out and you're working with clients, a lot of times there's fr friction, right? You present an idea, they maybe want something different. And I think the, the most basic approach that a lot of people take, and I was one of them, is to a lot of times blame the clients and say, oh, they're so stupid, they don't understand anything, they won't let me do you know, a really good job, they don't understand design, and stuff like that. And I think one of the perspectives that I got there from my boss, who I really consider a mentor at this point, was actually just under, he always put me in the context of saying, look, these people have a hundred problems right now and design is just one of them. So you have to understand our role in their problems as business owners. And you have to remember they are doing this for 10 years. This is their business. If they reject your idea, there's something there. I mean, maybe they don't know how to articulate it. They didn't go to design school, so they're not very good communicators, but there's, there's a reason why they don't like it. And we, it's not because they're stupid. We need to, it's our role to really understand what's the problem there and how to work around it because it's their business and they know it best. And I think that that is a huge mind shift for me that I took away and how to really better understand my role as a creative working with, 
with other business owners. I love that perspective because a lot of times, I think a lot of people have that perspective, like you're saying of, ah, the client doesn't get it. The client is wrong. And their first shift of that perspective is, but they're paying me. So they're right. And I'll go along with what they're saying. But what you're saying and the advice you got is much more rooted in empathy and understanding from the client's position and point of view, which I think is much more valid and much more constructive too. Something that you mentioned also at that agency is talking about pricing and going from freelancing and doing some projects in high school up till, you know, freelancing full time over the last several years. I imagine your pricing has changed a whole heck of a lot. So I'd love to hear any lessons you've learned when it comes to pricing creative services that you wish you would have known earlier or just think people should know. Pricing, of course, is always the hottest topic because it's complicated, right? It's an art. It, it isn't, everybody wants to break it down into a formula and simplify things, but it's really not simple because it involves a lot of aspects from human psychology to actually the value of your service. So it's, it's hard to quantify. But I think one of the things I learned, you know, that it's not all about the actual work because, you know, I would do the same work whether I freelanced or worked in an agency, but the agency would pack it and charge more than 10 times what I would charge. So why, why does that happen? And I wanted to understand that. And a lot of it is, again, it's sometimes it's service. So, you know, you, you get better service. They're bringing you into a fancy office. There's the experience and the experience is worth money. That's one thing, but also the, the positioning is, is different right there. You feel like you are working with a famous brand. That's, they specifically were kind of famous where we work. So you really understand and also how the meetings are run again with the focus on solving their problems and not just pitching them on ideas. So there's a lot of components and it did took, took me a, a lot of time to figure this out because it's even, again, there's a lot of psychology to pricing both on my perspective. I have to, you know, do a lot of uh, psychology work on myself to realize that I actually am worth more money than what I was charging. So part of that is myself, you know, work I have to do with myself and other, the, the other work is work you have to do with clients, how to communicate that, how to charge that. So it happens. I don't think that it's possible to jump from zero to a hundred. You, you kind of have to take the steps because when you take the steps, I kind of, I, I compare it to these you know, these crazy ex, ex sport, ex extreme sport that are doing these huge ramps and jumps. They didn't start this at day one and they build confidence by going through th smaller ramps or smaller jumps and then a bigger and bigger because you have to build confidence this way. So everybody starts out pricing low and everybody's always trying to, if you're doing the right thing, every time you'll try to push a little harder. And when you see that works and when you see that you deliver and when you see that they're happy at this price point and when you see there is still demand at that price point, you keep pushing it higher. So it's a process, but it's both understanding how to frame your work and in combination with delivering more value, which can be either doing better design work or selling a bigger service both design and development, for example, or just giving better service, faster service, better client experience. There's, you know, different facets to pricing. One of the facets that's been interesting to me over the last couple of years is 
the client themselves and you know how big of a company that is or how big their budget is because even if you start to realize I'm worth this much, they're going to be clients who just simply can't afford that. Did you come to a similar understanding or is there a point when you started focusing more on filtering for the right clients for you? Yeah, it is right. I think both of the things you said are the same because you know, you can't I don't think a lot of people are trying to sell, you know, high pricing to people who want to pay low pricing. This is just impossible, right? You know, the, the people who, if you compare it to food or restaurants, the people who want to go to McDonald's and pay $1 for a hamburger, you can't convince them, oh, but, you know, here's a hamburger that's worth $30. For them, it's like, yeah, but why would I do this? You have to find the people who want to buy what you are selling at the price point that you are selling. There will always be negotiation, right? It's okay. Everybody, it's a good business practice. They're, they want to spend less and you want to earn more. There will always be negotiation. But there are some people who have different, different ballparks that they're even playing with, right? I mean, let's compare this to buying a house. You'll always, no matter what house you buy, you know, you're going to negotiate and, and, you know, argue or, or something over price, but you can go and shop for, you know, in a, in a bad neighborhood for a small house, or you can go and, and go for something crazy in a prime location with a huge house. It's, you know, it's not going to be the same thing. In both of them, you care about how much you pay, but it's just completely not the same thing. If you are, let's continue with, with the house's uh, <laughs> analogy or metaphor, like if you want to build like fancy mansions, you need to go to the people who want to buy these things and, and sell that to them. You can't sell mansions to people who want to buy, you know, a studio apartment. A lot of people that I'll talk to, I can hear their question on this point, which is, yeah, but how do I meet those people? How do I get into those neighborhoods where I can find the people that want to buy these mansions are hard to get a hold of? How do I prove that I am somebody that can deliver that mansion for them? How did you start working with more upscale clients? Was it kind of a, a stair step up that way? Or did you, you know, just start fishing for bigger fish? It's a combination of first me improving my skill and having more, more experience and being able to deliver better result. But it was also luck. And I think, I think it's important to say this because a lot of people would, you know, always try to claim all their successes to their ability and, and disregard the, the fact of luck. But I, the thing is, when I moved from that agency, I, I moved to working at a startup company. And if I'll, I'm, I'm super honest, I was initially reluctant to go work there because I thought it's going to be boring, but they just offered me a really big you know, salary bump. So I was like, all right, I'll take it. And that company ended up being very famous for its good design. And I learned there a lot. And that kind of brand and network has given me a lot of good opportunities. Now, of course, if I didn't have the skills to deliver on those opportunities, that would mean nothing. But I did get an opportunity and I was by, you can call it by chance or by accident or by luck, put in, in a position. And I didn't even understand back in the day that, okay, startups, there are some tech startups that are really well-funded and can afford really high pricing. And now we are in a, in a time in history specifically where design is really strategic advantage in tech. So they're willing to spend there. I didn't have all these understandings. 
you know, when I got in there. But once I was there, I was like, oh, these people have money. They appreciate good design. Good design is strategic for them and I can deliver on it. So let's hit that. And it worked fantastically well. When we come back, Ron and I dig into why he started the Flux YouTube channel. So stick around and we'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I wanna tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot creator. Welcome back to Creative Elements. Today, Ron's YouTube channel, Flux, is a huge part of his success. But it didn't start that way. And while Ron credits his consistency on YouTube as a huge part of his success, I wanted to learn why he started it in the first place. Before I had YouTube, I used to write a blog. Initially, I had a blog in Hebrew, kind of a local for the local design community. And I did that for, for about four years. I would write weekly. So I was always... I always enjoyed kind of sharing my thoughts and putting my thoughts out there into the world. When the YouTube came about, it was just because I started watching, you know, YouTube a lot and 
I, I started watching Casey Neistat, who was doing the daily vlogs back in the day. And I found that format really, really interesting. And I would watch this every day. And I was like, oh my God, I wish I would be able to see the life of a freelance designer or somebody building, you know, a startup. Kind of like how, and, and you know, Casey was building a startup back in the day, but he didn't share a lot of the things that interested me. Like, how does the meeting work? Why do they make these decisions? So, so eventually I said, let me experiment. Let me experiment with doing this myself and talking about the things that are interesting to me and we'll see if that works. So I started doing videos. Initially, I also started by doing one weekly in a similar approach to the blog. And then I said, no, let me try the daily vlogging style, Casey style with an edit and a music and kind of showing Tel Aviv, the city where I'm living and travel for clients and all that kind of stuff. So I tried doing that. And I just fell in love with doing this. I mean, I was like, oh, why the hell would I keep writing a blog? This is so much fun. Like I was doing this every day and I had a blast while I was writing once a week and it was like hell to, to write that one post. So I just, it just clicked for me. And I did this as a hobby. I had no intentions of, I had no long-term play. I didn't try to monetize or anything. I would just, you know, hang around with a camera shoot while I was doing my own thing. And then in the evening after the kids go to sleep, I would spend one hour editing it and publishing. And it's just, that's how it got started. Since then, it's been like five years and it evolved. Today, I'm no longer daily vlogging and I'm doing kind of a different content, but that's that what triggered it and helped me understand that I enjoy making videos and I guess I'm good with that. So maybe I should do it. How did you manage the time it takes to actually shoot, edit, publish with the time requirements of your clients as a freelancer? It wasn't part of my day. You know, I would hang around with a, like this really small camera. Let me see if I have it here. Yeah, I actually have it here. I'm no longer shooting, but that's the camera. Oh, you, we're not shooting video, I forgot. But like a really <laughs> small Canon camera, I would hang around with it all day long and I would just shoot while I do the thing. You know, sometimes I would just put the camera next to me and kind of do a lap of me designing or something like that. It didn't take time. It did take mental space because I always, during the day, I was already kind of building the, the narrative for the video and editing it and thinking, what shots do I need? So when I started, it would kind of consume like 20% of my brain was all, always editing the vlog while I was doing other things, which was, by the way, it had a cost, right? I would eat lunch mm -hmm. with people and while I talked to them, I would think, do I need to shoot this? Do I need to not shoot this? So it was, it was mentally consuming, not time consuming. And then at the end of the day, after the kids went to sleep, I just spent 45 minutes to one hour editing it and that was just pure fun. It sounds like the whole time you were really enjoying this documentation and editing process. But this cost you're talking about, was there ever a point when you started to question why you were putting time into this thing on the side? So the, two things. One, the cost, as I went along, the cost decreased because I became so good and natural at it that I didn't have to think about it as much. So the cost decreased. But to be honest, when I thought about why are you doing this, I couldn't find a good answer besides it was a creative outlet. And today I, I can probably say 
I read this book, The Five Love Languages. Are you familiar with that mm-hmm. book? Or yeah. yeah. So I read this and um, I understood from that book that my kind of love language is words of affirmation. And thinking about it in this context, I guess that putting videos out there and getting kind of warm comments on them was very satisfying for me. I don't think I could say that back in the day, but I think there was obviously some kind of an ego element in there. I never thought about this as, oh, I will have like a million subscribers. That was never really the goal. To be honest, I never thought that was possible. I was like, this is so niche. Nobody's, I mean, the audience will always be small for that kind of thing. So I just kept doing it basically for fun. Obviously, it, it after a while, when it became a part of my business, now it's it has a different aspect. But that's that's what triggered it, I think. Do you remember any inflection points or changes that you made to the videos you were making that started to have an impact on your viewers or subscribers? So I think after like doing the daily vlog for like two and a half years every day, I started to mention in the comments that people are saying, skip to one minute and 38 seconds for the actual value. And then, because I tried to have kind of a main learning or takeaway in each video. So we, it wasn't just like lifestyle. Here's me riding my bicycle and eating lunch. I try to have, to have some kind of an insight and, and also give the titles based on that insight. And so I realized that people are more interested in the insight than what I had for lunch, even though I enjoyed you know, making it. And then at that point I said, okay, what they need to see is just see me in the office. Eventually it turned out into me sitting in the office and just speaking my mind about what's going on in, in my life or what I learned or some tips or, or things like that. And it transitioned from kind of a lifestyle vlogging to just educational content, you can call it. So that was kind of a major change. And from there, you know, I, I tried different formats. It evolved from there, but that was kind of a big change. Doing a daily vlog to me, especially one where you're trying to create or show insight, one, is a heck of a treadmill to be on. And two, if you're doing it every day and you're trying to come up with topics that day, you can get behind that treadmill really quickly. Were you getting ahead of the filming and editing and even topic creation, or were you doing that in real time as the days were passing? So for the first week, it was terrifying. It was like, I was really scared. Like, what would I talk about? What if nothing interesting happens and that kind of stuff. But I remember, you know, I I used to read a lot of Seth Godin blog and he writes every day for years. And I think he talked about the fact that, you know, once, once you get started, you know, the ideas are just out there. Also, James Altucher, if you're familiar with him, has the concept of the idea muscle. I mean, if you work the idea muscle, then eventually, you know, you don't worry about it. You, you have enough ideas. So the first week was, you know, really scary in terms of I, I try to think ahead of time. But after a while, I just some days I knew, OK, oh, tomorrow I'm traveling you know, to a client. So it's going to be about the client meeting or I'm going to a festival. It's going to be about what's, what insight I had at the festival. But other days it was just discovering it as I go along. But the good thing about it is there's two nice things about it. One, it really focused me on what's happening today. What am I learning today? Mm -hmm. What happened today? Which really kind of grounds you in the moment. The second thing was that every bad thing that happened to me 
immediately could turn into a good story. So that is a good thing, you know, because uh, you know that if you're fucked, that's going to make for a pretty good vlog. So, and, and it's really nice that there's something in your life that can turn any bad thing to something, to a good outcome, right? That's how I roll. <laughs> I know this wasn't part of your business to start. This wasn't something that you were using to get clients necessarily or were thinking was going to be a real income generator. But I imagine some of the clients you were talking to and eventually worked with found your YouTube stuff. And I'm curious if in the period of time when it wasn't part of your business, if you noticed a positive impact on your business just by having it exist. The simple answer is no. I mean, throughout the whole thing, I just had one client that came that found me through the YouTube and was a good fit, right? He was a, he was a startup founder. I got a lot of, you know, un unrelevant like not relevant reach out, but most of it it was it, it was not relevant completely. You know, throughout doing this for 5 years I got one client, but obviously that's not worth it. <laughs> for other clients I think for some of them it was kind of a negative impact because they were like, oh, so now we're going to be on YouTube. If we work with you, we don't know that we want to be on YouTube. And, and I, I, did, I did case studies on my client work after I'm done. And I never asked for permission because I'm, I'm a more of a <laughs> ask forgiveness rather than permission kind of person. And they told me afterwards, you know, we didn't really like that you did a case study on us. It's one of my best, my most popular videos <laughs> ever. Other clients told, <laughs> told me, you've completely ruined our analytics because we're getting so much traffic out of YouTube, we cannot understand what's the real traffic <laughs> of our website looks like. So <laughs> it wasn't necessarily positive, but... Um, yeah, again, I never did it to, to get clients, so I didn't oh, really care. Amazing. After the break, Ron talks about the moment he decided to create the Webflow Masterclass and why he's all in on Flux Academy, right after this. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com science. Welcome back. 
In the intro of this episode, I talked about Ron's conversation with Chris Doe and the emphasis Chris put on Ron's YouTube channel. But at the time, Ron was focused on his freelancing and software businesses. You have this really great interview with Chris Doe talking about increasing your prices and being paid as a high value consultant. And that was just a couple of years ago that you were focusing on that direction. So basically I'm, I'm running two businesses. So one of okay. them is a product business, which I, I run with a partner, developer partner, um, which is online proposals for freelancers. And we're bootstrapping that business. We just got it off the ground last year and it's, it's doing good, but it's not enough to support us um, yet. And so I'm doing freelance, which I've been doing for like 15 years. And that's been doing, been going great you know i've been doing 200k last year this year i'm looking at 300k so it's going really really good but fantastic um mm -hmm. yeah but it's also consuming like most of my time and chris brought up he says well why aren't you talking about youtube as part of you know your overall strategy and portfolio and then in terms of the youtube channel which you don't put a lot of emphasis on in our dialogue here if you you were able to what would you want to where would you take the youtube channel like what does success look like for you in terms of youtube hmm. um i think for me right now i do have a sponsor so it is making money for me but that wasn't mm -hmm. the goal starting uh right. i wasn't like building this as a revenue model i think for me success would be if i have like a large audience and then yep. um, perhaps, I don't know, I can travel and, and speak at events and, and stuff like that. Just that would be a great outcome from my perspective. That's perfect. Yeah. So at what point did you start to think that, okay, people are seeing this as a real asset that I have. Maybe I should put more either attention or time or resources into it to connect it to your overall business. So what happened was, so first of all, after like, I think maybe a year or two, I did start to monetize. So I brought in a sponsor, but again, considering how much I made as a freelancer, that was still not very significant. What ended up happening is that I launched my first course about two years ago, again, by sort of accident, kind of as a side project because one client dropped and then I did this and then it just exploded. Hey everyone and what's up? I'm super, super excited to launch the Webflow Masterclass today. If you've been following my videos in the last few weeks, some of you have been wondering, why are you talking about Webflow so much? And it is, as I've explained a few times, because I've spent the last two months working on a masterclass that really helps you to go from beginner with Webflow or even somebody who knows how to use it into mastering it and being able to use it efficiently to create website in hours, just like I do super profitably. And when that exploded after working, after doing a lot of things myself and working with a lot of clients and seeing, so I did have a benchmark to understand, oh, something very, very unique happened here that does not happen very often. So I should not disregard this and move on from this. What did that look like? How did you see, oh, this is something remarkable that's happening? Mainly sales, a lot of sales. Uh, so I did a pre-sale. When I did this poll on Instagram, you know, on Instagram, you can see who clicked, 
Webflow, for example, out of the two options. So I sent a direct message to each of them saying, look, I'm going to do the Webflow class. If you want, well, you can buy it now at a discount before it's ready and you'll get X, Y, Z. And I've sent that message to all of these people and a lot of them purchased. So I got val validation that people are willing to pay before this even exists. And this, this by itself paid for what I needed to cover. So I was profitable. The, the bet was profitable before even getting started. Amazing. That's when I realized, okay, there's something here because there is a good, what they call in the startup world, product market fit. Again, I never try to sell anything to my audience, but when I did, and the reception was so well, I understood, okay, so there's something here that's working and we need to explore this. And that ended up shifting into being my main focus, building the, the online web design school that I'm building right now. And when, when I did that, well, obviously, the, now when you're looking at it as a business, then the main kind of, you can call it user acquisition, lead source, traffic, whatever you want to call it, it's YouTube. So now you have to start looking at the numbers. Now you have to th start thinking about, will this work? Will this bring? So that kind of changes the perspective and motivations and, and everything, right? It moves from being a hobby into being your job. So that's, that's a big transition. But again, it wasn't planned. I can tell you right now, though, that when Chris brought this up, I had a lot of kind of personal resentment from teaching because I had, I didn't want to be that guru person. I, I felt like, I don't know, I don't want to be that person. But when I did it and it worked so well, I thought, well, maybe I, I need to deal with my issues because people, people want me to teach them. So, and they enjoy the content that I'm making. So, you know, grow up. Why did you decide with, with this story you had about online educators being gurus and you didn't want to do that? When did you decide, I'm going to make a course? Because that's a significant investment of time itself just to make that. So what was it that said, I will give this a try as kind of a, a test? <laughs> so one client dropped and I had kind of a cash flow haul. And I was like, okay, I plan to work on this client that makes you know, this amount of money. Will I be able to replace that with an online course? And I kind of drew this out. I, I did kind of like a worst case scenario, average case scenario, best case scenario. And I try to plan for this. Okay, find vest, so much hours, and this is going to be the return. Is it worth it? Can I, and I basically, I, I made an investment, right? I said, okay, I'm going to invest the next three months in building this and hopefully it'll work out. And it did. Were there other course ideas that you were playing with before you ultimately decided it's going to oh, be Oh, for sure. I, I, I just did an Instagram poll. What would you like me to teach, Webflow or logo design? It was pretty close, actually. <laughs> what if you had done logo design? Maybe it would have been just as successful. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Something that I don't hear a lot of online course creators or instructors talk about is instructional design. How much did you think about the actual design of the lessons themselves? Like, did you go and think about how do I make good curriculum or had you kind of picked that up through years of doing YouTube? So specifically with Webflow, I've been teaching Webflow in person before, and I've done workshops both in Israel and outside of, you know, th the funny thing is like probably a year before or a few months before, 
Webflow, the company, actually paid me to come and, and deliver a three-day workshop in the U.S., and they paid me to do this. And we kind of when, when we discussed the pricing, I told them, okay, I'll give you a discount and maybe I'll use that structure in the future and that's how I'm gonna make it work. And so I basically had, you know, I've piloted the, the curriculum and the structure and I've done that before. So it was mainly moving it over to video format and expanding, you know, things that needed expansion. But to be honest, to be fully honest, I don't think it was that amazing. So this year, I mean, earlier this year, we released version number two after we had like 2,000 people go through the program and we learned a lot. And so the second version is like 10 times better and <laughs> we restructured everything. So it was okay. It was good enough. I don't think it was amazing. It was version one. We talked about pricing as it relates to freelancing. How did you think about pricing as it relates to a course? Because there's advice that's all over the map on that too. To be honest, I don't remember, but <laughs> I mean, it's value pricing just like everything else. So, and, and in this case, I made the, the ROI very, very clear. You know, for me, it was just like, if you're just gonna do one client for your, for your clients, if you're gonna do one website, you're gonna, you know, 2X, 3X, 4X your investment. So that's kind of no brainer. And you have two more courses now you eventually decided, okay, I'm going to go do this full time. And I know in 2020 this year, you stopped taking clients. It seems like you're, you're, you're kind of a reluctant educator. Like you're saying, this is working so well, I need to do it. So how did you eventually say, all right, I'm going for it. I'm going to make two new courses. How did that mind shift happen? I'm going I'm, I'm gonna to bring up Seth Godin again, because I think he says, a lot of people think you need to do what you're passionate about, but a lot of times you will build passion for things because they work. So I think that was the case. I mean, the more it works, the more you're like, oh my God, this is good. This can, we can make this better. I mean, we can help more people. And you get excited about this because you see the reactions that it gets. So that's how kind of I, I've, it, it's true. I was reluctant, but my passion built. And looking back at it, now I can say, you know what? I was always into, you know, even looking at blog posts I wrote in Hebrew 10 years ago, I was talking about how we can make the design education better. And I was always passionate about trying to teach people better, you know, how to be designers and how to bring more value. So I was always passionate about this, but now I saw that I actually have a platform and, and I'm really excited about doing this. But yeah, making the decision to stop taking on clients wasn't an easy decision because it kind of, there is an identity change there, right? You are always the designer. If I'm not the designer anymore, then what are you? Are you just a teacher? Are you not gonna lose your relevancy so fast? I mean, it's, it's difficult. It wasn't really easy to make that choice. And I'm still agonizing and struggling over it just got off the phone with somebody who wants to pay me to, to, to work with them. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to take it. I can't take it, but you know, let's, let's go to lunch together and I'll try to help you over lunch you just, because I, I love helping people. I was never kind of like the, the freelancer that hates their clients. And I, I think a lot of people look at online courses and they think it's a way to run away from client work. And <laughs> It's funny, I even saw, you know, Chris Doe and The Future, which are, you know, 
big inspiration for me because they're much bigger. They kind of celebrated the fact that they shut down their design agency and their full-on content. And they were like, no more client work. And I'm like, I'm not celebrating no more client work. I love the client work. And so, yeah, it's, it's not easy, but I really believe that life is, is full of trade-offs and you have to make the tough choices if you, know, you want to be good. You mentioned that now the YouTube is client, customer, user acquisition for these courses, and that's changed your process around it a little bit. Can you talk some more about that and how you've managed a changing relationship to the thing that began as a hobby? I will be super honest right now. I don't know that I have an amazing answer because right now, as we speak, I'm a little bit burned out. And I think that making this change from doing something for passion into doing something for money or for, you know, to hit certain metrics and stuff like that takes out a little bit of the fun and it just turns it into work. And sometimes you might even say grunt work and it's difficult. So yeah, now, now we have strategy. Now we're looking at what works, what's trending, what's, what do we think will, you know, what's being searched. So we're doing all the, all the stuff that, you know, if you Google on YouTube, if you, if you'll search YouTube, how to grow on YouTube, all these types of things that for years I didn't care about. I never cared about anything. And now I have to care about this and it, it's difficult. I don't know how to handle this long-term. I can tell you that we're building other channels, right? So we have an Instagram channel, we are now building a blog and we're building other channels. So we're not dependent on me doing videos because honestly long term i don't want to do it if it's not fun i want to do it and i want to share knowledge and uh while it's fun i don't want to do it for work you're using the word we a lot have you built a full team around flux academy and or the flux channel and if so when did that happen yes so the, the answer is yes we are this year this is the main goal of this year so this year we're trying to build a team so to transfer the business from me to, to, to a business that is a real business. You know, and I, I always said in the, you know, when I, when I said that I don't want to be a guru, because I don't think I'm the smartest person in the world. I think, you know, we can learn from a lot of other people. And I want to take advantage of all the knowledge, not just the knowledge that I know and the certain experience that I had. Yeah, so now we are, we're, we're eight, I think. Wow. Yeah. And what, what were the first hires you made? Because a lot of people, they might start to taste a similar success and they're thinking, I'm at my limits, I need to hire somebody. What were some of the first hires that you made? First, my wife started working with me and started taking care of all of the finance and administration, all the things that basically I hated doing. I hated looking at spreadsheets, collecting invoices, you know, processing refunds, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so she took over that and that was fantastic. And then I got an editor that's gonna help me with editing the video. And that was a big, big thing to delegate. And yeah, and then it's just, it's just grew. So now we have content people and designers and we have coaches helping the, the students and community managers, cause we have a lot of students that we're supporting and yeah, it's growing. I'm wondering, you know, you're talking about you've hired eight people and now you're chasing these metrics and that's affecting how you're creating certain content. The masterclass worked because you did the videos to your style the way you wanted to do for years. And you said, hey, I made this thing. So 
why why not just continue down that same path, continuing to make the videos that you want to make and saying, hey, I made a thing. What decision did you make to say, I want to focus on growth? No, I don't think that the focus is on growth. I think that the focus is doing the best thing. And I don't think the first version that I did was the best. It was the fastest thing that I could do to deliver on my promise. It was not the best. And I can already tell you that even version two that we have right now, I have a lot of ideas on, and we will do version three next year because I, I can see a lot of, and we're working on version two of the, the different course that we have right now because I don't believe anything is perfect and I want to make it better. It's not about growth as making more money. I want to make sure that my courses deliver more value and, and actually help people get the results they need as fast as possible. I meant more of like the, the general YouTube content that you're creating. Now you're putting a lot of strategy behind it. Why not just continue with what you wanted to make week to week as opposed to looking for, you know, keywords and things like that? I think what I wanted changed, <laughs> you know? I don't want to do a daily vlogging anymore. I'm not interested. I, I wanted to explore that. I explored that for two and a half years. I don't want to do it anymore. I mean, it's, that's not interesting or exciting for me right now. It's not like I want to go back to something else, you know? Maybe if, if I am looking at, you know, what am I excited about, then maybe, maybe perhaps I'll open up a podcast because I like talking to people. <laughs> well, I, there's a lot of things we're, yeah, <laughs> we're exploring. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to, but we have to, but now I'm looking at this from a more balanced perspective. It's not about just what I want. It is important to keep, in mind what I want. Obviously, I, I'm building a business. I don't want to build a business I hate. But we need to take a balanced view of what's good for the business and what I want and find some kind of a balance there. Yeah, that's kind of what I was trying to get to because I, th I think a lot of people, they start to find success in one direction or another. It could be with client work. And they think, all right, now I just need more of that. And sometimes I question to myself, like, more to what end, you know, when is more enough? And if it, if it starts to threaten my relationship to the thing, I could see where I might think, do I want more? I don't know. And I wondered if you'd struggle with that. I'll, I'll give you the, the different perspective is I know about myself that I get bored easily. If I would only do what I want, I'd stop doing YouTube. I'd move away and mm. just move away. I'm a designer. I like to create things from scratch. I'd like to move on to the next thing. If I keep that pattern, that's not a very healthy pattern to grow a business and build something meaningful. So I need to, and luckily I work with a business coach who keeps me in line. And that's, that's really good because if I would be left to my own devices, I would just move on to the next thing, right? Keep doing what I'm passionate about. Um, but when, you, when you're doing that, you, know, you might be limiting yourself from building something that you also want. We always have conflicting desires, right? So it's not just do what you want. I want to build a business that's bigger than me. And, you know, we have to balance these conflicting desires. Ron is another example of the 10 year overnight success. On the surface, it may look like lucky timing or catching a break that his first online course found so much success so quickly. But when you look closer, you see that it was actually the 20 years of doing freelance design and nearly four years of sharing hundreds and hundreds of videos on YouTube that paved the way to this success. 
The tail end of our conversation here gave me a lot to think about. It may also look like Ron is just focused on growing the new Flux Academy business, but actually it's more about his high standard of quality. Now that he's committed to this business, he is applying the standards he's always had for his YouTube channel to his courses. He wants them to be extremely high quality. And as a result, he needs to build a larger business to support that high quality development work, but also high quality support for his students. It's not about growth for growth's sake, but growth to create the best business that he can. If you want to learn more about Ron's Flux Academy or check out the Flux YouTube channel, links to both are in our show notes. Thanks to Ron for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Brian Steele for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. And again, if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week. Universe.